Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast. I'm David. And I'm Madeline. And today's episode is called Harry Podcast and Diagon Alley. So first, let's start off this episode five with our synopsis of the chapter Diagon Alley. Maddie, would you like to start? Sure. So Harry wakes up um, the morning of his birthday and thinks that the previous night was a dream. He's in the hut with Hagrid, realizes it's not a dream. He goes with Hagrid to London and subsequently to Diagon Alley. They visit sites such as the Leaky Cauldron, where he sees how famous he is. He goes to Gringotts and gets his money. He goes to Madame Malkin's and meets Malfoy. He gets Hedwig. He goes to Ollivander and gets his wand, which is twin course with Voldemort. So a lot happens in this chapter, but that's kind of a brief synopsis of everything that Harry experiences in Diagon Alley. Great. Thank you, Madeline. Um, next, we'd like to talk about the title. Um, so what did you think the title Diagon Alley meant to you? Well, the literal interpretation is that it's the name of the main nexus of the wizarding world in London. It's a big shopping center and community. It's also where Harry is more formally introduced to the wizarding world and is accepted into it. That's right. So it's the nexus of the wizarding world. It's his first introduction to it. I think also just this isn't more like in depth or anything, but it's it is like a more literary interpretation of it. I think that the um, title Diagon Alley is actually a clever play on words by J.K. Rowling, where she's saying the wizarding world and the non-magical world are, are in parallel with each other. They exist side by side and sometimes they intersect and where they intersect, they intersect diagonally. And that this is one of the places where they intersect diagonally, and so it is called Diagon Alley. Yeah, that's really, that's interesting, because I always knew about the Diagon Alley diagonally thing, but I think the way you just sum that up about how they intersect is pretty interesting. I think, actually, I didn't realize that until mm, I was maybe 11 or 12. It had taken me several years since I read the first book before I actually found out that that was what the play on words was. Yeah, so. she's pretty good at that. We'll talk about some more of her plays on words she later has many in this chapter. Them. Yeah. So now we'll move into our section where we discuss the plot of the chapter. So David, what did you notice about some new characters we get introduced to in this chapter? Well, we've got a lot of new characters. Um, so instead of talking in depth about all of them, we're just going to touch on each of them. Um, starting with our major characters. Um, We are introduced to Professor Quirrell briefly in the Leaky Cauldron, who is the nervous, stuttering professor of defense against the dark arts at Hogwarts. And uh, as we'll figure out towards the end of the book, he was actually in Diagon Alley that day to steal the Philosopher's Stone from Gringotts, which he fails at because Haggard got there first. Another character who isn't important in this book but becomes very important later on, especially in Deathly Hallows, is Griphook, who is the Gringotts goblin who takes Harry to um, first... Uh, his own vault, and then to Vault 713, where they retrieve the Philosopher's Stone. Yes, and the next major character that we meet is um, Draco Malfoy. However, we don't get introduced to him by name. He's just kind of the drawling boy who's in Madame Malkin's. Um, And he becomes, obviously, Harry's nemesis and bully. Um, This scene also introduces Harry to the idea of blood prejudice for the first time, um, because Draco asks him if both of his parents are pure blood, essentially. Are they each a witch and a wizard? And talks down about um, muggles and mudbloods. Um, Although he doesn't use the word, I will point out. He just says something like, I don't think they should let the other sort in. Yes, exactly. So we don't get a full 
you know, full description of this yet, but it is interesting that this is already being hinted at so early in the book um, that this is a big plot point. And it reminds me a little bit of how um, real life racists sort of talk about racism to people that they maybe aren't initiated with yet. Like they'll say something like, oh, you know, I just don't think that they should mix or something like that, you know? Draco here is saying something to that effect. He's saying, oh, you know, I just don't think they should let the other sword into Hogwarts. It's sort of like a backed off version of what he actually believes, but it might be more appealing to someone like Harry. Yeah, and it's interesting um, that he's kind of trying to reach out to Harry in this way because um, he's sort of thinking, well, maybe Harry's on my level because trying to get a sense if he's pure blood and if he's kind of as snobby and obnoxious as he is. Um, But Harry is already of course, more mature and gets a sense that he doesn't like this person, so he resists this. And it's interesting to compare um, Draco to Dudley, who are two very similar characters that we've met so far, um, because they're both bullies and they both are very interested in yeah, bullying Harry, and then also the idea of this class-based prejudice and elitism and, mm-hmm. you know, having things and being being the best. Um, being better than other people, basically. Yeah, yeah, so that is a pretty important character that we're introduced to, although we don't get his name yet. That's true. Uh, and I do think the comparison to Dudley is very apt. Harry even points out um, to himself, he even thinks that this boy reminds him of Dudley, whoever he is. Mm-hmm. And I think that actually contributes a lot to Harry's dislike of him almost immediately. That he, even though Malfoy isn't bullying Harry in this moment, he's he's just talking with him. Harry still feels like this is a person who is a bully, and he doesn't like bullies. So another character who's very important that we're introduced to here is uh, Ollivander. We don't actually know his first name. I don't I don't know if we ever learned his first name, but um, he is the wand master of Diagon Alley. And the probably, according to Hagrid, the best wand maker in the world, although that's debatable. Um, he teaches Harry basically the, the basics of wand lore, with the most fundamental point being the wand chooses the wizard, um, which becomes supremely important later on in the series when there's more about, you know, the elder wand and the interaction between Harry's and Voldemort's wands. And he sells Harry his first wand, um, which is a holly and phoenix feather wand, um, And I think the wand is really important for a lot of reasons. First of all, it's the second time we've seen a very, very strong symbolic connection between Harry and Voldemort. So Rowling is already set up, only five chapters in it, she's already set up um, for the reader a very important connection between the two characters, linking basically their destinies together. The first one being the scar. The first one being the scar, of course. And then the second one now being the wand, which is brother to Voldemort's wand. So in a lot of ways, I think the reader gets a sense that these two characters are going to be tied together in terms of destiny and fate and all that stuff. They're going to be opposing forces. Um, There's an interesting thing that I learned about um, the different woods of the wands that are brought up here um, when I was doing some research for this chapter. Um, Yew wood, which is Voldemort's wand uh, wood, is commonly associated with death and rebirth in the way that yew trees sort of grow and die and then regrow. Whereas holly wood is um, symbolic of pain and suffering and sacrifice and opposition to evil, which is a very good summary of Harry. Both of them have a phoenix feather core, which is symbolic of death and rebirth as well. So in a way, you could say just from looking at the wands that we sort of know already what's going to happen with these characters. Voldemort is going to be obsessed with death and rebirth, 
specifically avoiding death. Harry is going to be all about sacrificing himself for others and to save the world from evil. And also, potentially, there's going to be some death and rebirth there as well, linking him to the phoenix. So that we sort of went off on a tangent on Ollivander talking about the Wandler, which is really important. Um, but another character that we're introduced to is Hedwig, who is Harry's owl, and she becomes his familiar and a close companion. So I think that's it for the major characters. But David, I know you wanted to say something about the textbook authors that we get introduced to through the books that Harry's purchasing. Right, yeah. So they're in, in the second part of the letter from Hogwarts that Harry gets, there's a book list. And um, rereading this, I just it was even more in my face than usual how funny the names are here. So just to name a few of them, we get Miranda Goshawk, Adelbert Waffling, who's the Charms textbook author, Emmerich Switch, who's the Transfiguration textbook author, Philidia Spohr, who's the Herbology author, Arsenius Jigger, who's the Potions author, Newt's Commander, Magical Creatures, etc., etc. Just really funny how almost Dickensian these name choices are. They're they're very like self defining in terms of their names and what their profession is. For example, we mentioned Arsenius Jigger. Um, in potions, uh, a jigger is a, is a unit of measurement equal to like, I think it's one and a half liquid ounces. It's like what you would pour a shot with. Um, and then Arsenius is probably a reference to arsenic, which is a very common elemental poison. So in that way, like his name is reflective of like what he studied, which I think is just really funny how, um, how Rowling decided to write all these names. She probably had a lot of fun writing them, I think. So moving on from the characters, there's some other, a lot of major plot points here, but a couple of things to point out. Harry turns out to be very wealthy in wizard money thanks to his parents' fortune, um, which is a huge contrast to his previous state where he was living with the Dursleys and basically getting nothing. Um, We're introduced to flying and Quidditch in this chapter. We also learn that dragons, vampires, and hags are all real beings whose existence is known to wizards. Uh, We learn about the wizard government and the Ministry of Magic, so we're really just getting more things added to the picture of the wizarding world here Mm -hmm. and sort of learning with Harry about um, all these things that are real and that are just normal for these witches and wizards. Another interesting plot point in this chapter was Harry's reaction to fame. So we've talked some about this before, but... Um, as someone who's been ignored most of his life, he reacts to being famous with real astonishment, astonishment and discomfort. Um, he, the discomfort really comes from him not being able to remember the thing that has made him famous, as he mentions to Haggard in this chapter, um, which is defeating Voldemort as a baby. And um, he also just worries that he's not special enough to deserve the praise and attention he's received. He talks about how he doesn't know anything about the wizarding world, so Mm -hmm. why does everybody, you know, love him and he's not going to be good at Hogwarts? Just all these anxieties about that, living up to expectations. But again, his humility comes through here, really, in this whole chapter, even though he's getting all this attention and money, and um, that really comes through as a character trait. All right, so that should wrap up our summation of the plot of this chapter. Now let's talk about some writing things that we noticed. Maddie, what did you think about this chapter from a writing perspective? Well, I noticed the parallels between the beginning of this chapter and chapter one, um, namely with Hagrid's involvement in Harry's life. So he was the one to take Harry away from the wizarding world and to the non-magical one um, originally when he was after the attack and in this chapter he takes him out of the non-magical world into the wizarding world again so it's a really nice 
parallel and Haggard mm-hmm. is sort of his guide between these worlds. Um, sort of comes full circle there. Yeah, it comes full circle. And we'll talk a little bit more later about sort of Hagrid's moving between these two worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of foreshadowing moments in this chapter. Um, just to mention a few, we see the Nimbus 2000, which is paid off later in this book. Um, the connection between Harry's wand and Voldemort's, which is, of course, paid off in Goblet of Fire and, again, in Deathly Hallows a lot more. Um, Griphook and Hagrid's descriptions of security measures at Gringotts, um, which come up during the Deathly Hallows, during the heist. And Hagrid's statement that he'd like to own a dragon comes back later on in this very right, book. Yeah. So just lots of things. There's probably even more in this chapter. There's so much here. But those are things that really stood out to me as things that are going to be hugely important even towards the end of the book. Yeah. So one thing that I noticed here was that in another great example of um, J.K. Rowling doing the show-not-tell style of writing, she shows us how similar but different the magical world and the non-magical world are, mostly via some funny examples of Hagrid struggling with muggle transportation when he's trying to get onto the underground, when he's trying to use um, muggle money, as he calls it, um, wizards, it seems like when we get into Diagon Alley, um, have tended to eschew technology in general. There's not a lot of computers or calculators or like credit cards or checks or anything like that. You know, they still use a gold-based coin currency that you have to carry around in a pouch all the time. Um, they don't have anything more advanced than a printing press, it would seem, um, so I wondered why that would be. I mean, maybe it's just wizard arrogance or uh, an unwillingness to rely on technology, which can break sometimes when, to their understanding, magic works just fine and it works all the time. Um, or maybe it's uh, something else. Maybe they just um, haven't really realized how easy technology makes living for most people um, because they ha- they can use magic to solve most of their problems anyway. It is interesting to think about what could happen if, technology especially now modern technology and magic were combined um you would think that it would only help each other you know it would only make things better for them but um maybe some of those things actually would slow them down but it is it is interesting to think about that how far behind they are in some ways because they don't really need this technology yeah it's sort of like they're they're stuck in like turn of the century technology and everyone else is like 100 years ahead of them it's weird All right, so now it's time to talk about our favorite quotes from this chapter. Madeline, what was your favorite quote? So my favorite quote is pretty short on page 85. This is Ollivander talking to Harry after the wand that is Harry's has selected him. He says, I remember every wand I've ever sold, Mr. Potter. Every single wand. It so happens that the phoenix whose tail feather is in your wand gave another feather, just one other. It is very curious indeed that you should be destined for this wand when its brother, why its brother, gave you that scar. And I really like this quote um, because obviously it's a huge reveal and it has so much meaning for the rest of the series, but I also just like the way it's written. I think it's a very concise quote that just sort of lets you know Voldemort has this twin wand, but in a kind Mm -hmm. of a poetic way. It's very dramatic. Again, it's sort of like a play. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that scene as well. Um, it's such great imagery when uh, they're going through and 
they're trying a hundred different wands and Rowling describes the scene and the the wands are stacking on the chair and the stack keeps growing higher and higher and Harry is like, am I ever going to find the right wand? And then he holds it in his hand and he waves it around and he just feels warmth and sees sparks fly out and it's just like an incredible dramatic scene in general. Mm -hmm. And I just love that quote about it. Ollivander is such a weird character. You know, I think we, we didn't do him enough justice earlier on. We should think about what what why why does he come off so weird so it's interesting because harry comes away from this interaction with Ollivander, thinking that he doesn't like him very much it kind of creeps him out and i was wondering why that was but i think it's mostly because he gives this big reveal that you know his wand is the brother to Voldemort's wand and he seems kind of excited by it in a weird way because it's like exciting for his his science and his craft and i think harry feels a little bit weirded out by that because he doesn't want to have this connection with Voldemort. Right, or or the fact that Voldemort's wand has done so many terrible things. He almost doesn't care that much about it. Right, He's like, yeah. Well, it has done so many great things. I mean, they're terrible, but they're great. So, yeah, you know, that's, that's good for my right. me and my brand. That's the rest of this so quote, and that is, that's, is a pretty unsett- unsettling quote because it's, you know... It's hard to sort of say that anything he did was great. So it is It is interesting that Ollivander is yeah. someone who would say that. I guess like great in the most dictionary definition sense of the word where yeah, it just means like a lot. incredible yeah. or amazing. Yeah. And what quote did you choose for your favorite one this chapter? I chose one on page 80, which is a conversation between Harry and Hagrid about schoolhouses. And it begins, And what are Slytherin and Hufflepuff? Schoolhouses. There's four. Everyone says Hufflepuff are a lot of duffers, but I bet I'm in Hufflepuff, said Harry gloomily. Better Hufflepuff than Slytherin, said Hagrid, darkly. There's not a single witch or wizard who went bad who wasn't in Slytherin. You know who was one. Vault, sorry, you know who was at Hogwarts? Years and years ago, said Hagrid. So um, I'm going to continue my quote discussion into the new thing that we noticed because I think it's the same. So it's not exactly a new thing that I noticed, but I read into it more this time around, which is that this quote, um, we can unpack a lot about it, but it basically reveals another type of prejudice that exists in this book and in this series, um, that all Slytherins are evil, or more specifically, that it's only Slytherins that are evil. And Rowling through Hagrid lays this out very early on in this chapter, um, and so there's this idea that the reader gets and also that Harry gets that blood prejudice only exists in Slytherin House, that nobody else has blood prejudice. And therefore, that on- the evil wizards only come from Slytherin because anyone who has blood prejudice has to come from Slytherin. But we know that not only is this morally wrong to, to prejudge people like that, but it's also factually incorrect. Based on what Hagrid certainly knows about history, Sirius Black, who is the man who is believed to have been Voldemort's spy and who betrayed the Potters, was a Gryffindor. So even just starting there, we know that at least one wizard who went bad wasn't in Slytherin. Um, And the person who was actually Voldemort's spy, as we find out in Prisoner of Azkaban, is Peter Pettigrew. He was also a Gryffindor. So just from that, we know that this is wrong. And more to the point about morality and why it's wrong to assume things like this, Just because Slytherin tends to produce more bigoted and more evil wizards doesn't mean that the house itself is evil or corrupted. Obviously, they produce good wizards as well. 
Otherwise, why would they continue to allow Slytherin House to exist at all? It doesn't make any sense. Harry himself even falls down this rabbit hole of prejudice in the series. And it isn't until the end, at, at in Deathly Hallows at the Battle of Hogwarts, that he finally accepts that there are actually noble and brave Slytherins, Severus Snape and Horace Slughorn, just to name a few. I mean, maybe they're not perfect people. I don't think anyone would argue that Snape is a perfect person, but um, at least he was brave, and at least he had some honor. Right, yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, just in general, um, it, I think it's more focused on Slytherins, but in general the way that people talk about the houses are just in these very narrow boxes of um, if you're a Ravenclaw, you're this. If you're a Gryffindor, you're this. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that it does sort of lead to this kind of segregation of people and labeling of people that is not always that helpful. Um, And as we see, you know, the Sorting Hat often spends a long time deciding which house, um, not for everyone, but for a lot of people, like for Hermione, she spent a long time deciding. And also um, for Harry himself, he was maybe going to be in Slytherin, and that likely has to do with his Horcrux connection to Voldemort. But at the same time, he had something in him, no matter what, that, you know, led him to maybe be in Slytherin in this sort of ambitious um, characteristic that they have so it is it is more complex and it is interesting that we're seeing all these different judgments beginning in this chapter yeah and i think one of the things that we will definitely talk more about this when we get into the sorting hat chapter the the idea of segregating people into houses by sort of personality traits or whatever is sort of archaic and it doesn't allow for enough growth of personality and and personal growth i mean just as a quick example I think if you were to take Harry right now, as he is, and say, which house do you put him in? I think Gryffindor is what you would say. But I think there are different points in the series where you could look at Harry and say, he's exhibiting the quality of a different house right now. I think there are times when he exhibits qualities of Hufflepuff house, definitely times when he's been clever and acts like a Ravenclaw, definitely times when he acts like a Slytherin and and is showing ambition and, and power and power hungriness and drive. Um, and, and all of those things, if you look at it in a vacuum, all of those traits are neutral traits. So courage, we might think of as being like chivalry or like, you know, something, something good and heroic, but it's not necessarily good. You can be courageous and a bit of an idiot. Hardworkingness and fairness, I think are universally good, which is sort of why Hufflepuff is not disliked by anybody, but cleverness can be bad. Uh, and certainly Slytherin House's traits can be good or bad. Ambition can drive you to succeed and do great things, and it can also lead you down a dark path of, of seeking power. So it's really not so much about the house that you get placed in as much as it is about you. And I think that's the point that I was sort of trying to get to here, which is that just because you're in Slytherin, it doesn't mean you're bad, and certainly there are wizards who have gone bad who weren't in Slytherin. Yeah, exactly. I think it'll be really interesting to get into this into later chapters. Um, One more point I was just thinking of related to this is that really the friendships in the school are segregated by house often. Um, They -hmm. do have other friends in houses, but, you know, the core the core groups are in Gryffindor, which makes sense because they live together and have classes together. But just the segregation of the houses is pretty is pretty extreme. So I think that'll be interesting to explore in the future. Yeah, I agree. So Madeline, what was a new thing that you noticed in this chapter? So I found myself noticing Hagrid's perspective more in this chapter. Um, We talked a bit about this earlier, but 
the idea that he sticks out in both the Muggle and the Wizarding world, um, which he is supposedly a part of, um, he sticks out everywhere because of his size and his appearance. And he is just a, you know, just a character and draws attention to himself. He's kind of an outsider. Um, but he also isn't afraid to ask questions and share opinions about the Muggle world or mm-hmm. the Wizarding world. He feels confident in himself, in the tasks he's been given, um, and his abilities. And, you know, he really isn't afraid to be himself. I think that's, I think throughout the books, he just is kind of following his passions and being a good friend to Harry and everyone. So yeah. he's just a great character, and we all know that. But I just think that this just shows that he's a good role model for Harry, in specifically in this way and in this time, um, when Harry is also kind of an outcast and is being thrust into this new world. Yeah, and we also get to hear that he was expelled from Hogwarts, actually, right. in this chapter, um, when they're at Ollivander's. So that was interesting to, to hear. And it also... Um, gives us something to wonder about Hagrid, sort of how did that happen? And that, again, is a foreshadowing bit that will come up in Chamber of Secrets. Well, that will about wrap up this episode of Harry Podcast and Diagon Alley. Thank you all so much for listening. I'm David. And I'm Madeline. And we'll see you next time on the Harry Podcast. Knox.